Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our new and the first meeting of our new program uh, for this particular season. And we want to welcome all of you. It's good to see many back from last year. At least I didn't frighten you away. And it's good to see some new faces, too. So we want to welcome all of you. Uh, and for those new people who have not been here before, I'm Mel Barrar, the instructor for this class, and uh, I'm pleased to say that we are beginning our 15th year in offering these classes here at St. Clair. Uh, you know, I usually get the question of, well, how could you when these buildings aren't even 10 years old yet? Well, we borrowed space, you might say, from St. Rose for five or six years. In fact, we have a number of people here from St. Rose. Uh, and so we want to welcome all of you to this new program. And so we begin with, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts as we begin a new session and a new season. We ask that you help us to truly understand uh, the teachings of St. Paul and how he affected not only <coughs> Christianity, but how he affected history in general in many ways. So we ask that you give us insight and strength and courage really to set aside some of our preconceived notions so that we can be open to your spirit teaching us from this session. So we thank you for this time together and we thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Tonight we are going to be getting to begin a new session entitled St. Paul, His Life and His Letters. All right, good. Let's now talk about St. Paul, his life, and his letters. Many people are kind of concerned about studying Paul because from what they've heard at Mass, and you only get a little snippet of, of uh, his writings at each of the Masses, uh, if, if at that, um, and it always seems to be somewhat confusing. The one that most women uh, remember, and then they just automatically don't like St. Paul because he's telling them in one of his letters that wives should be submissive to their husbands. Okay? And that just wrinkles a lot of people. Well, there was a reason for that. And when we get to that part, although we will not be dis discussing that particular letter in this session, we will still talk about some of the things that have irritated people over the years uh, from his writings. But St. Paul was a very dynamic person. And in order to understand his letters, you really have to understand the man, because he writes in a very specific way uh, from his heart. It may not seem like that, but uh, unfortunately... He doesn't know when to stop uh, because some of his letters are a whole paragraph long. Or conversely, some of his paragraphs are only one sentence. And you have to kind of diagram it. Remember how in school we used to have to diagram? Well, sometimes you almost have to diagram some of his uh, sentences to see where he's coming from. But once you get used to that, I think you'll find that it can be very interesting. Um, <clears throat> what we want to do is to spend tonight, because obviously you haven't had a chance to read uh, the letters that we will be discussing, and don't think that you have to uh, digest uh, a, one of the letters all at one time. We're going to take it in parts and you will be given some clues up front what to look for and so if you look at it that way, that you will be just discussing small portions two or three chapters, might, you might say, of Galatians first and then uh, Romans, two, two or three chapters at a time. 
it'll be much easier if you concentrate on just those two or three chapters rather than on the whole letter, all right? Because you'll just seem to get lost if you try to get the whole letter down in one fell swoop, all right? You'll just say, what in the world is he talking about? <clears throat> all right. To begin with, St. Paul was a Jew, but he was not born in Israel or Palestine. He was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, which is now southern, Tur <coughs> southern Turkey. All right. And he was born sometime about eight to ten years after Christ. So that would make him, you know, eight or ten years younger than Christ. There is no indication that he ever met Christ face to face uh, or even came close to meeting Christ while Christ was in the flesh uh, before his death and resurrection. But he met Christ uh, in a most spectacular way and we will get that into that in a few minutes. He was born of a Jewish mother but a Roman father. And Tarsus was a Roman province. So, by his father, he was a Roman citizen. By his mother, he was definitely a Jew, and he was raised as a Jew. And boy, was he raised as a Jew. Oh, boy. Oh, hey, big. Um, he was raised in a very strict Jewish household, but in a Hellenistic culture. What I mean by that is that most of the Greek Empire, the Greek Empire by Alexander the Great, back in the third century, spread to almost all parts of the Mideast, Southern Europe, and North Africa in that 300 years between Alexander's death and the time of Christ. Some places it took hold more so than others. The Hellenistic culture was a culture of very high education. Uh, they welcomed and practically worshipped the arts, which is shown by the many Greek uh, statues and statuary and art forms. Uh, they welcomed many kinds of philosophy. Uh, they had a number of uh, myths, you might say, uh, from uh, the Greek mythology series, also Roman, but to a lesser degree, mostly Greek. And so Greek culture was predominant in southern Turkey, and even in northern Palestine, in the area of Galilee. So there was a clash, you might say, of cultures. Because, as you know, Judaism at this time was a very <coughs> exclusive faith. It excluded anyone who was not a Jew. Whereas the Hellenistic culture welcomed everybody as long as you were educated uh, fairly well off financially you enjoyed the arts you enjoyed exploring anything and everything and I mean everything uh, food particularly sex and so forth and so on so you can see how these two cultures clashed and that is the atmosphere that Paul was born into now, his mother smothered him and protected him from all of this other worldly life, and he led a very, very strict Jewish life, okay? At the age of 13, roughly, he was sent to Palestine to study in the temple. He was sent to Jerusalem, really, uh, to study under... Uh, the Rabbi Gamaliel, all right? Uh, Gamaliel was a Pharisee of the strictest order. 
but he was sort of fair and tolerant compared to many of the Pharisees. In fact, if you recall, in one of the stories surrounding Jesus and his passion and death on the night after he was uh, arrested, you might say, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Gamaliel was the man that told the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin that they had better take caution on treating this particular man, Jesus, uh, because there was something about him that was uh, different. He wasn't just the same uh, itinerant preacher that had been around many years, for many years, all right? Um, but, of course, they kind of, they had their minds made up, and they didn't listen to him. Nevertheless, Paul studied under Gamaliel for a number of years until he was about 30. What he studied was the Mosaic Law. He practically memorized the Mosaic Law, which was predominantly the first five books of the uh, modern Old Testament. All right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Because that made up the Torah, the Jewish law, which is still the law according to uh, faithful Jews even today. Now, he was educated with this in mind that anyone else who was not a Jew was a, a Gentile, but who was against Judaism and was an enemy of Judaism. You have to understand his radical thinking in order to really see what he got into and then how he completely turned around and went in another direction. Right? He was an extremist. You've seen... I'm sure fanatics uh, from many of the Mideastern countries today, how they can get so uh, riled up and aroused uh, that they really don't think straight. Well, he was almost to that level, but he was thinking straight in his mind, and he was thinking that this was something that he was called to do, to defend Judaism and to put down any of the infidels who were... Um, doing anything contrary to the Mosaic law, particularly Jewish people who began to convert to, uh, to Christianity uh, after the life and death of, of Christ. Right. These people were the worst, and therefore he was putting them uh, to death. In fact, when we meet Paul really for the first time in, in well, Actually, the second time, but let's say for the main appearance on the scene, he's on his way to Damascus with letters from the high priest in Jerusalem to search, uh, find, and bring back as prisoners any Jewish people in Damascus who were following the Christian way, as it was known at that time. All right. And that's where we first meet Paul. Let's, if you have your Bibles, and I would like you to bring a Bible with you each time, turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9. All right, for those of you who don't have a Bible or whatever, I'll read it and just listen along. Chapter 9, verse 1. Saul, still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, which would empower him to arrest and bring to Jerusalem anyone he might find, man or woman, living according to the new way. Now, this is what Christianity was first known as, all right? The new way. As he traveled along, and was approaching Damascus. A light from the sky suddenly flashed upon him. He fell to the ground and at the same time heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, sir? he asked. The voice answered, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Get up and go into the city where you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with Paul stood there speechless. They had heard the voice but could not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground unable to see, even though his eyes were open. They had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus, and for three days he continued blind, during which time he neither ate nor drank. Now, there's a couple points in there that I think are worth discussing, and this is what we'll do. I'm not going to read every night uh, during this course um, long passages. I will have expected you to read that, and I will refer to them, but I will not go back and read. But this is important, all right, because it's the beginning. When the voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Does that raise a question in your mind? After all, Jesus is dead and resurrected and ascended into heaven by this time. All right? So how could Paul be persecuting Jesus? It, yes, it is a foretaste, you might say, of the church, the meaning of the body of Christ. He is persecuting not Jesus personally, but he is persecuting Jesus through the body of Christ, the church. Okay, Very important. Now, we're going to come back to that uh not so much tonight, but at a later time, because in the uh, book of, uh, well, the letter to the Galatians and the letter to Rome, to the Romans, uh, this whole concept of the body of Christ is uh, brought to light in a very unique way. Okay. All right, now, Paul has been struck off his horse. He has been knocked blind, you might say. Uh, he's heard the voice of Christ, not only asking the question, why are you persecuting me, but then telling him to go with the people who uh, will lead him and into Damascus, and there he will be told what to do. Going on then, it says, There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, to whom the Lord had appeared in a vision. Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord, came the answer. The Lord said to him, go at once to Straight Street, at the home of Judas. Now, this is not Judas Iscariot. Judas was a very common name at that time. Ask for a certain Saul of Tarsus. He is there praying. Meanwhile, Saul saw in a vision a man named Ananias. Just kind of the reverse. Coming to him and placing his hands on him so that he might recover his sight. But Ananias protested to the Lord, I have heard from many sources about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He is here now with authorization from the high priest to arrest any who invoke your name. The Lord said to him, You must go. This man is the instrument I have chosen to bring my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I myself shall indicate to him how much he will have to uh, suffer for my name. With that, Ananias left. When he entered the house, he said to his, he laid his hands on Saul and said, Saul, my brother, I have been sent by the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the way here to help you recover your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized and his strength returned to him after he had taken some food. 
Alright, now that's the main part of the scene. Now, I want to read a next verse or two because it raises a question. Saul stayed some time with the disciples in Damascus and soon began to proclaim in the synagogue that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, does that raise a question in your mind? Hmm? Huh? Yes, it was. If that is the way you look at it, then the question automatically has to come in your mind, well, if he was a murderous person one minute, and three days after being blind, he starts preaching about Jesus, what was he going to preach? What did he know? He had no contact with the other apostles. He had no contact with Jesus while he was alive. So how did he know what to preach? What happens here in this book of uh, the Acts of the Apostles, there is a gap in time. Okay? A gap in time. So, if you go not necessarily uh, yes uh, Mary Lou's question is is there any relationship to the three days that he was blind to Christ's uh, death and re- resurrection uh, no I don't think so because the Holy Spirit had not been given to him yet. Okay? It wasn't until after Ananias laid hands on him and prayed that he received the Holy Spirit, then that happened. Okay? So, no, I don't think there's any connection. But you'll find throughout the Bible, particularly the New Testament, there are a lot of symbolic threes. Alright? Many, many of them. Alright? Um, Three, as you probably know, in Jewish culture, three, seven, and ten were sacred numbers. And, no, three, seven, and twelve, sorry, were sacred numbers that they're used frequently here. Uh, but in this case, I don't think there is any connection. All right. If you go over to uh, the Acts, the letter to the Galatians. <coughs> No, no, because he shut that out of his mind. Uh, Chet's question is is important, I think. Um, he's saying that because of Paul's interest in faith, his faith, that he must have known a lot about what Jesus was teaching. And I would say no, because he was so against that teaching that he would have forced it out of his mind and would not listen. And so, no, I don't think that there's any relationship there. Okay. But let me give you a clue. Okay. Paul tells us a lot about himself in his various letters. And that's why we are studying these two particular letters, Galatians and Romans, because we will learn a lot about the individual from them. Now, let's set the scene again. He is knocked off his horse after hearing Jesus and told to go into Damascus, where he will then be told what to do. All right? Uh, he has a vision that a man will come and cure him of his blindness. Ananias is that man. He comes, lays his hand on 
Paul and Paul receives his sight again. Okay. Let me go and read now from Galatians because it answers that question of where did he get all of this information? Well, we've got to go to two letters, really. Okay. It says, uh, this is uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verse 11. I assure you, brothers, the gospel I proclaim to you is no mere human invention. Invention. I did not receive it from any man. See? So, he did not get it from any of his apostles or the apostles or anyone else. Nor was I schooled in it. It came by revelation from Jesus Christ himself. Important to remember. All of that Paul learned and taught came from a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Now, let me go on, and then we've got to go to another letter to explain a little of that. You have heard, I know, the story of my former way of life in Judaism. You know that I went to extremes in persecuting the church of God and tried to destroy it. I made progress in Jewish observance far beyond most of my contemporaries. And in my excess of zeal to live out all the traditions of my ancestors. But the time came when he who set me apart before I was born and called me by his favor, chose to reveal his son to me, that I might spread among the Gentiles the good tidings concerning him. Right. Let's stop there. And then go over to Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 12. This is Second Corinthians, I'm sorry. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'd like to go back to Galatians. Uh, I, I skipped a part that I should have read to you. And in your Bible, they're only two pages apart, so don't. Yeah, okay. So let's go back to Galatians chapter 1. Sorry. By the, but the time came when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his favor chose to reveal his son to me. And that is the revealing is the apparition that happened on the road to Damascus. That I might spread among the Gentiles the good tidings concerning him immediately without seeking human advisors, or even going to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me, I went off to Arabia. It doesn't say where in Arabia, but I went off to Arabia. Then later, I returned to Damascus. Okay? So you have this interlude where he doesn't just get up from uh, being blinded and start preaching. He goes off to Arabia and spends some time there. Now, we don't know how long he was there, but it could have been and should have been uh, a significant amount of time, six months, a year, whatever. All right. Now we go over to Corinthians and see what happened in Arabia. Chapter 12, verse 2. says, I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, in other words, he's writing this second letter to the Corinthians 14 years later. All right. But he's telling what happened when he went to Arabia. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, whether he was in or outside his body, I cannot say. Only God can say. A man who was snatched up to the third heaven. I know that this man, whether in or outside his body, I do not know. And he's talking about himself. God knows. Was snatched up to paradise. To hear words which cannot be uttered. Words which no man 
may speak. About this man himself, I will boast. But I will do no boasting about myself unless it be without, be about my weaknesses. And even if I were to boast, it would not be folly in me because I would only be telling the truth. So, during that time in Arabia, he had some kind of an experience, vision or whatever, in some kind of spiritual way, where the Holy Spirit infused him with all of this knowledge that we find in these 12 letters. Okay. Because he tells it right up front, he never really spent a lot of time with any of the apostles. And when he did, he argued with Peter a couple times. So they never did quite got along. All right, because they came from really different points of view. But you have to understand that this man now has been infused with perhaps all of the theology that was available at the time that mankind could understand. Whether it happened instantly or over a period of time, we have no way of knowing because he does not go into any detail. But that is the key to where Paul got all of his information. He makes a point a couple times in a, in a couple places that he really almost avoided, although he had good relationships with all of the apostles, he almost avoided them because he wanted to preach and teach in an entirely different way. Paul's teaching was not like the gospel writers. He did not teach about Jesus Christ personally. He did not really do any uh, recapping, you might say, of the miracles or, or the um, teachings of Christ in any way but he embedded some of the concepts into his letters, particularly love of God and love of neighbor. Jesus talked a great deal about love in the biblical sense. All right. uh, Paul does that in first letter of Corinthians uh, chapter 13. A beautiful, beautiful uh, paragraph or, or chapter, you might say, on the whole concept of love, and then the idea of love being put into action is runs throughout his letters. But he doesn't recap a lot of the stories like the gospel writers have done. His main focus was on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it meant to mankind. And that is where we have to really focus our attention because everything else in Paul's thinking was unimportant. To the point where he tells his own Jewish peers that the Mosaic law, once they have accepted Christ, the Mosaic Law is unimportant. It is of no value. And of course, this gets him into a lot of trouble. Because here he is fighting, you know, to make sure that everybody, every Jewish person observes the Mosaic Law. And then the next moment, when they hear him or see him, they're saying, he's saying it's not important anymore. That's because he has realized that laws by themselves cannot save you. And that's true. Is there anyone here that has been kept from an accident because of the traffic laws? Not really. Not really. By observing them, you are doing what you're supposed to for your own good and everyone else's. 
but they're not going to actually save you from an accident. All right? Laws by themselves cannot save. And that is the big problem with the Jewish people, particularly the Pharisees, who preached the law was everything. In fact, they went to such extreme uh, in the last 500 years of Judaism before Christ. Uh, they went from an extreme of totally ignoring God to the extreme of observing the Mosaic law to the point where it produced somebody like Paul. But it was love of the law rather than love of God. And that's where they made a big mistake. Because the law became more important than God. And so they went to the other extreme. Before that, during the Jewish monarchy, from the time of King David to the Babylonian captivity, they went from the high point of Judaism at the time of David and Solomon uh, to the low point of the Babylonian captivity solely because they neglected the law and they neglected God altogether. Then, after the Babylonian captivity, they came back, but they went to the other extreme. They took the words of the book of Deuteronomy and they made it their God. And they observed the law to the nth degree, but they left out God altogether. So it was just virtually the same result, you might say. Now, Paul is coming along and he's saying, you know, yesterday I was preaching the Mosaic Law as being everything. Today I'm saying it's nothing. Forget it. Well, that got him into an awful lot of trouble. Not only with the Jewish people, but with the apostles. And what happens, particularly when some of the Jewish converts to Christianity felt that new people coming in, particularly Gentiles coming into Christianity, had to go through the Jewish ritual of circumcision. Now, circumcision to the Jews is and was similar in its meaning to our baptism. If I spell that wrong, forgive me, but I'm not going to worry about it, okay? Both of these are commitments. For the Jewish people, circumcision is not a medical procedure, per se, for them. It is a commitment to God, the Father, through Moses. Baptism, in the Christian concept, is a commitment to God through Jesus Christ. Circumcision was a land-based concept, as was the first covenant. Baptism is a spiritual commitment based on the death and resurrection of Christ, which is now the basis for the new and eternal covenant. The first covenant having been voided because of the rejection of Christ by the Jewish people. And the whole concept of the people of God now is open to all those who accept Christ and are baptized. We become the new chosen people. And we will read this and how it came about in the letters of Paul. Yes. 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 And 
Right. right. Yes. 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 Susan's point here is, is apropos to this. She's saying that the baptism of John the Baptist was not the baptism that we are talking about today in the Christian concept. It was a ritual that existed before Christ within Jewish circles. It was a pious ceremony, but had nothing to do with Judaism per se. It was a pious ceremony, uh, and I, I don't use that in, a, in any derogatory way or negative way. It was a ceremony where people would sincerely want to wash themselves of past sins and offer themselves to God. But it was sort of apart from Judaism. And it was sort of halfway, you might say, in between. And the, the important point here is that Jesus took that and used it through his own example to make it this new commitment. Okay. So, that's how we got the sacrament of baptism. Because Jesus took a pious ceremony out of Judaism and converted it into the new commitment. Yes. Was this an idea of repentance? Yes. Yes. John say repent. Yes. And Jesus has taken that concept and expounded on it, you know, sort of glorified, well, that's not a good word, but you know what I mean, flowered it up a little bit. And, of course, the message is repent and be baptized and uh, observe the Gospels. Okay. All right. So, <clears throat> I hope you're getting the idea of this extreme change <laughs> Are using a, a popular TV program, the Extreme Makeover. You know, All right. Paul now has become a Christian. Interesting thing you will not find in any of Paul's letters. He very came rather close to it in Galatians there, uh, but you will not find him apologizing for his past actions. He does not apologize for anything that he did prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus. And that is because he felt strongly that he was observing the Jewish law. And he's not going to apologize for that. But he goes on now in saying that's behind him. And once you have accepted Jesus Christ, anything in the past is forgotten. It is in the past. And of course, what happened here, because the Jewish people, in general, a small exceptions, a small group of people as an exception, but in general, the people did not accept Christ. The majority of the people did not accept Christ. And because of that, because of their rejection of Christ, God the Father withdrew the first covenant and opened the door to the people of God, the chosen people, or the body of Christ now, to those people who accept Jesus Christ and are baptized. Can you see the big change now? All right. What we're going to do from here on is to see where does Paul take this? Because as I said, he does not recount the stories and the traditions uh, that we find in the Gospels. And that's just as well. We don't need another Gospel. What we need now is some of the information in the Gospels put into a different context so that we can live by them on a daily basis. What Paul is, has done, really, is become the first great theologian of the church. But one thing you must remember while reading this, during his lifetime, neither Paul nor the other apostles ever gave thought or voice 
to the idea of a separation into a new church, into a new belief. They were hoping that they could convert the Jewish people into thinking and realizing and understanding and accepting Jesus Christ as the long-sought Messiah. Unfortunately, that never happened. God obviously knew that that was going to be the case. But nevertheless, he had to preach, they had to preach to the Jewish people first. All right. They gave him the opportunity. But unfortunately, the majority of the Jewish people, particularly the leaders, rejected Christ. Now, they should have known better. After all, they had 15 literary prophets before them, all pointing to the time of Christ. They even had judges and patriarchs and non-literary prophets before that, who all pointed to the Messiah. And yet when the Messiah came on the scene, they rejected him as they rejected all of the prophets. And so for that, God finally withdrew the first covenant and opened it up to those people who accepted Christ and are baptized. Just accepting Christ is not enough. It is the baptism, the whole idea of committing yourself in a vow which all of our, our our sacraments are, to Jesus Christ, to God through Jesus Christ, I should say. Technically. Does that make sense? Can you see now why and how Paul got from Saul, you might say, of Tarsus, to St. Paul? All right. And his letters... There's interesting thing about his letters. Unfortunately, they were not written in the order in which you find them in your Bible. Okay. By the way, does anyone know how they were arranged in the Bible in the order that they are in? Yes. By the length of words... I don't mean individual words. I mean the number of words. All right? Now, why? That's the second part of the question. Why? Hmm? No, 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 no. There is a, there's a better reason. It is because that is the way the prophets were listed in the Old Testament. You have 15 literary prophets. And you'll find, if you count the number of words, that Isaiah is first, Jeremiah second, Ezekiel is third, because each of those diminish in the number of words. And so that was already established when St. Jerome, finally in the 4th century A.D., brought the New Testament together. All right? So... Because there was no date on the letters that Paul wrote, and we can, you know, sort of figure out approximately when they were written, we don't know for sure. And so we figured, why bother? We'll just put them in the order, the same order that the prophets are listed in the Old Testament. So they're in there by length. That poses a problem, because you don't really see the growth the spiritual growth of St. Paul when you read his letters in that order. But actually they were written by First Thess- Thessalonians, First Corinthians, then Second Thessalonians, and then Second Corinthians, all right, then Galatians, and then uh, Romans, etc. All right. Um, but when you read them in the order in which they were written, and I'm not asking you to do that, but 
you will see that Paul starts out in his very arrogant self. You know, I am the great Pharisee that is now turned to be the great Christian. I'm going to do this and I'm going to show you that. And he gets real boastful. He even talks about boasting in Second Corinthians that I read here earlier. But as he goes through life, and he spent a little, little somewhere between 30 and 35 years in preaching and teaching, he mellows. And as you see the pastoral letters, uh, one or two, Timothy and Titus, they are very mellow. They're full of love and they're full of all huggy and kissy stuff, you know. And it's interesting to see how Paul has mellowed over the years because the spiritual love that God has showered upon him has begun to sink in. And he now incorporates that in his letters. All right. So, unfortunately, when we read Galatians and Romans, we're sort of in the middle of that time span, so you won't be able to see that as well. But if you, on your own, uh, read some of the other letters uh, of Paul, hopefully you will begin to see that. Okay. Now, I'm going to stop here for the evening and see what questions that you have that I can perhaps answer. Yes, Gail? Did Paul actually write the letters himself? Uh, that's a good point. Paul, uh, Gail asks, does, did Paul really write the letters himself? Uh, we believe in most cases, no. It was not, uh, and the reason is in one of the letters, I forget which one now, he says, uh, I am writing this in my own hand. Uh, in other words, he adds, a sort of a postscript to the, the letter at the sort of at the end of it, uh, saying that he wanted people to know that it was really him. And that gives us a clue that the letters are so well read, uh, written that he probably were, they were dictated uh, to scribes, which was a very common thing. Most of the Gospels were written the same way. Uh, <coughs> And then the scribes take it and sort of clean it up a little bit, clean the grammar and so forth and so But the essence is Paul's, yes. All right. Now, there are, there are a few letters that are in dispute as to whether they were written by Paul or not. And I never pay much attention to that because I feel that what difference does it make who wrote them? If the material that your reading is worthwhile, what difference does it make uh, whether it was actually Paul or someone else? Uh, such as if you read First uh, and Second Timothy and First Titus, you'll get all kinds of arguments why they were or why they were not written by Paul. Well, so what? You know, they are what they are, and I, you know, I dispute a lot of. That, so I don't pay a lot of attention. All right. Any other questions? Did, did that answer your question, Gail? Yeah. Yes? Did Paul write in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic? Did Paul write in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic? He wrote in Greek. That was the main language of the elite at that time throughout <laughs> the Roman Empire. Yeah, that sounds funny that Greek was the main language. Uh, <clears throat> Latin didn't come into common use until much later, and Italian didn't come into much use until a lot later. Okay. I always wondered if questions, why did the, well, you got kind of two, two things going in that question, all right, almost all of the old, of the New Testament, New Testament was written in Greek, all right, even the Gospels, now you might say, well, some of the apostles weren't very well educated, 
how would they have known Greek? Well, as I said, most of them used scribes. All right. And if you look at your your Bible, in the front of each of the Gospels, it says the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right. According to. Meaning that the material, in essence, came from them, but was not necessarily written as we have it today by them. All right. And that's true with all of the letters of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, what you're referring to is the Septuagint version, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, which was made in the second century B.C. It was made in the diaspora, diaspora uh, or the area outside of Palestine. <coughs> by those Jews who wanted the Hebrew scriptures translated into their own language, which was Greek. They then incorporated some very beautiful uh, books into the Old Testament that were written in Greek rather than Hebrew as the other uh, books of the Hebrew scriptures were written. Okay, When it got back to Palestine and the area of Jerusalem, around Jerusalem, those people refused to accept the Greek version and ignored the six books that were included in the Greek translation. Our Catholic Bible includes those six books. Many Protestant Bibles do not include those six books because when Martin Luther broke away from the Catholic Church. He tried to discard everything that was predominantly Catholic. And what he did was he adopted the Hebrew scriptures rather than the Greek scripture, the Greek translation. And therefore, your Protestant Bibles do not have those six books, okay, which are one and two Maccabees, Wisdom, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and there's another one I forget, in parts of hmm? Esther. Esther. No, I don't. Well, it could be. Sirach. You're right. Sirach. Yeah. And parts of Daniel. Uh, last two chapters of Daniel and uh, a part of another book. Anyways, that's not too important. And don't run out and buy a new Bible if you have just the Protestant Bible. Somebody has asked me, well, what's a good Bible? And if you stop and think about it, that's a, a rather strange question because they're all good. Uh, some translations are better than others. Uh, for example, uh, the one I most recommend is the New American Study Bible. All right, But any Bible that you have is acceptable. Don't worry about it. Uh, the, the one that I think is probably the most beautiful as far as language is concerned, but also the most difficult to read, is the, is the Jerusalem Bible. It has, it's very poetic. It uses a lot of the and thou and uh, uses a lot of words that aren't found in the other translations, uh, but it, is, it makes it a little more difficult. But for devotional purposes, it's, it's a beautiful Bible, okay? Uh, the new revised, um, uh, yeah, new re- <laughs> thank you. The new revised standard version for Catholics is also a very acceptable, all right? And is coming into common use. But the scriptures that are used at our Mass are out of the New American, uh, New American Bible, uh, and I recommend the study guide. This is not it. I have it at home. It's too heavy to lift and bring in here. We need a truck. Um, but nevertheless, it is very well worthwhile. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, Dick. It seems to me... I always have to be careful when you ask a question. <laughs> I'm on guard. Okay. It seems to me... If Paul didn't have any free will, 
Uh, you'd have to define free will, but I know what you're meaning, or you're saying, is, and, in other words, God twisted his arm. He had no choice. In, in a way, that's probably partly true. I won't go all the way. Uh, partly true. And that is because, and what, what Dick is referring to is, when Paul had these visions in heaven, they were so powerful, so overwhelming, as heaven will be for all of us when we get there, if we get there, all right, that he had no choice but to preach and teach, as he did. In fact, he even says that in, in one of his letters. He said, if I, and one of the prophets did the same thing, I believe it was Jeremiah, uh, says, if I bottled up in my heart or myself all the things that God wants me to say, I would explode. That it's so overwhelming that I must go on preaching. And Paul has really the same concept. He has to do it. And he says that in, in many ways. Uh, and you can see it. And the things that he went through, shipwreck and beating and all kinds of disasters uh, for the sake of preaching what? Let me hear it. Christ crucified. All right? No other concept except Christ crucified. He doesn't even talk really about his uh, resurrection or the ascension. It's Christ crucified and the importance to mankind, the importance in God's plan of salvation. And we'll talk more about that next week. Wasn't Paul making his choice though of baptized? Yes. Yes. That's where he chooses. Yes. He said no. That's right. That's right. But you see, what Dick is really referring to is that he was so overwhelmed. Well, his mystical experience. Yes, 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 that's true. But, that's right. He did have uh, free will to say no, but the knowledge and the evaluation or the benefit of what he was being called to do far outweighed that. Yes. Does that answer your question? Okay. Any other questions? Yes, Frank. Yes, Frank brings up a good point. Paul, when trying to convert his own peers, the Jewish people, he ran into so many obstacles that he finally gave up. And Christ apparently told him that this would happen, but he had to try. He had to preach to the Jewish people first, because they were the first ones called. And the apostles or the other apostles did the same thing. By the way, when I say the other apostles, how can I include Paul as an apostle when he did not live or know Jesus Christ? The term apostle in itself means, from translation from the Greek, it means one who is sent out by Christ. Okay. And so we're talking only about the original 12 apostles. Even Matthias, who was uh, brought in to replace Judas, is not officially called an apostle. Although a lot of times you will see that in uh, various books. Okay. You will also see uh, Barnabas, Titus, and Timothy often called apostles. Technically, they were not apostles, all right? But you might say they came very close. The apostles were truly those who were chosen by Jesus Christ himself. But wasn't Paul 
also chosen by Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus in that experience that he had by being knocked off of his horse and so forth. Yeah, and that is the way he accepts it. And we accept it the same way. So there really were 13 apostles. Okay. Uh, what I'd like you to do is to ponder all that we talked about tonight. Again, if you have questions, uh, bring them in next week. And we'll try to answer them. And let's, after we say the closing prayer here, there will be ladies in the back who will uh, gladly accept your registration form. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the many graces and blessings that you have given us through the writings of Paul and through Holy Scripture in general. Help us now to understand that these are really uh, your word coming to us through various men. And we should take it all seriously. Some more than others. Some more uh, uh, <coughs> applies to us today than it did at other times. But nevertheless, it is all important. So help us to look at it that way and to better understand through our study what it all means, and how it applies to us personally. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.